Our reading this morning comes from the book of Revelation. Uh, This is chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This is the word of God for the people of God. Children are dismissed, and Pastor Jay will be back shortly. (laughs) So, (laughs) here he is, the man of the hour. All right, open up to the book of Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible. It's easy to find. Open up to the very end. You'll get there. We're starting a new series called A Vision We Can All Understand. The reason I chose that title is because Revelation is probably the most uh, misunderstood book in the Bible, I would say. It's surrounded by a lot of debate and controversy as people read about dragons and lampstands and pregnant women and uh, strange imagery, which causes us oftentimes to be confused about what the theme and message is really of Revelation. And I think it's a lot simpler than we make it out to be. Sorry, I ran here from the the gym. That was a short little 40-yard dash. (sighs) So I want us to see a vision from this book that I think John, the author, originally intended that I do think we can all understand, that I think we can all agree on. And in deciding on this series, I was thinking about uh, the beginning of Flat Rock in August of 2016 when we started our series on Genesis. And I thought, you know, as we looked at Genesis and we laid this foundation for this biblical worldview of how do we see the world with God as creator, and Jesus as the Savior and Rescuer that he sent, and then we interpret our worlds in light of what we believe is that truth, which is a truth that obviously many people in our culture do not agree with or even hostile to. As we lay that foundation, and then we look at if that's true, if that worldview is true, then what does that mean for us as the church? How are we supposed to interact with this world with that worldview? Then I thought, you know, the end of this kind of trilogy of sorts to begin our time here at Flat Rock from Genesis to Acts and now to Revelation, Revelation is really answering the question, is it worth it? If God is Lord and and He has sent His Savior and He is the source of all life and sovereign over all of the world and its actions and time frame and history, and we as the church are His people called to go out into the world to tell the people about this God and His love for us, then we have to ask ourselves, even though things do not work out as they should and we face opposition and people disagree with us, is it worth it? So, I'm excited to to dig in here. Um, I will give this caveat. If we have to have some some coffee um, during this, you know, if, if I'm starting to rattle some cages about some real disagreements about how you view the end times and Jesus coming back, I, I, would, lo- I would embrace that. I would love that. 
Um, that's really healthy for us to do. I know this, there's not a lot of dialogue in what we do up here with me preaching, so if you feel like you need to dialogue on it, I'm happy to do that. So let's pray, and then I'll get started. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for its truth. I thank you that we can come to it, and, and there's just a depth here of knowledge and experience that we cannot exhaust. I do pray for anyone in this room who's new to the faith, who's new to Christianity, that they might, uh, through this series, really get an understanding of what we believe as Christians to be true. That you are um, our king who has conquered the evil one, who has conquered evil altogether, who has promised that all the sad things will one day come untrue. Although we wait in that tension in between your first and second coming and we see all of the evil around us and we wonder how you can allow it to happen, please give us hope that your promises are indeed yes and amen in Jesus Christ, whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, as you all know, avid movie watcher here. Not a lot of movies go by that I don't actually try to see. I, I just enjoy the whole experience of seeing movies, going to the movie theater by myself. Some people think it's really depressing, including my wife. Um, but I find it to be quite therapeutic. And uh, I, I watched watch quite a few of these Netflix movies that have come out. Um, quite a, most of them, I would say, are pretty awful. Uh, but there's one I watched that I found to be uh, quite entertaining. Have any of you all seen Bird Box yet? Raise your hand if, you've, if you can admit that you've watched Bird Box. Oh, the whole Patton family has watched Bird Box. That's great. Um, I enjoyed this movie because I'm a sucker for like post-apocalyptic, dystopian end of times movies. Like if it's about that, I'm probably going to watch it in some capacity, uh, depending on you know how dark it really is. But this movie, Bird Box, has been watched by an estimated 50 million people or more. It's the most popular Netflix movie ever made. And people are even doing this crazy Bird Box challenge, you know, where they're like blindfolding themselves and then doing really inappropriate things like trying to drive a car or jumping off of stuff, and it's just absurd. And so um, maybe some of you all have done the Bird Box Challenge. I don't know, but it doesn't sound very safe. Uh, I have personally not tried it. But it does speak to the mass effect that this, uh, this one singular movie has had. And the movie tells the story of an invasion by some kind of mysterious entity that if people look at, they either become suicidal or they want to tell other people to take their own lives, which is just awful and dark and messed up. But it presents this really this really scary world. Um, one of the theories about the mysterious invaders is that they're not aliens, but actually demons from, an, from another dimension who have crossed over into our world to destroy it. And that's really become quite the popular narrative nowadays, kind of this multiverse, there's different dimensions, there's something else going on that we can't see, and there's these different worlds going on. Hollywood seems obsessed with telling stories about these alternate dimensions and world and multiverses because I think we all know there's something else going on. We all know there's some, some spiritual reality to life, that this is not all that there is. I would say that in our heart of hearts, we know, we have this, this sense that the physical is not all that there is, that there is a spiritual reality to our worlds. But Hollywood, instead of recognizing that, is telling stories of a godless existence where that other sense, that other world that exists out there is either aliens or demons or something horrible. Um, one of our collective worst fears, I think, as humanity is that there's this evil force capable of destroying our worlds. Our, we recognize our, how fragile 
our worlds are. And we know evil exists and it's out there, but we don't know exactly what form it takes. So we can't put our finger on the source or the reason for its, its, its existence. So in Bird Box, the irony of the story is that in order to survive, you must go blind and find shelter huddling together with others who blind themselves in order to survive the threat. It's literally the blind leading the blind with humanity hiding away, simply trying to survive. And it reinforces this cultural idea that we all know evil is out there, but because we don't know how to interpret it, or we either turn a blind eye to it, or we blindly join it and encourage others to do the same. And one thing I find to be unfortunate is how many people read Revelation, and it's Revelation, not Revelations, Revelation, just kidding. They read it as this kind of disaster movie, this post-apocalyptic, dystopian disaster movie where they're not really quite sure to do what, what, what to do with the evil that's depicted and represented in it. And so, like we do a lot in our culture, we create conspiracy theories about what's really going on here. Because when life seems out of control, that's what we do. We, we create these theories. Conspiracy theories help us feel like we understand what's really going on. So there's all these different thoughts about what's going on in this book. And I think, again, the message is much simpler. I think this is more of a wartime love story, if you will, that's going on here. There is this battle between good and evil, and this letter is written to remind us that we're going to be okay. That there's something that we can trust in, in a world that seems very out of control. And it's a story that doesn't tell us about a band of survivors meant to blind themselves to the present dangers in order to simply survive the threat in a world on the brink. It's not that pessimistic. The story of Revelation is telling, the story that it's telling is one of optimistic hope for people being threatened by evil who are not supposed to turn a blind eye to an unidentifiable threat, but who instead are called to take off their blindfolds and acknowledge and identify the evil threat and call it what it is and look to a hero to ultimately come and eliminate and exterminate the threat forever. Now you notice I, I kind of went into like this, this world of you know, fantasy and sci-fi and everything like that. I think Revelation is supposed to kind of prick some of the same parts of our hearts and our minds because it's meant to reignite our imagination, to see the world in a different way as it's meant to actually be seen. That there really is this cosmic force of good versus evil. There really is a battle raging. There really is something going on behind the physical. That the material world is not all that there is. And that there is a spiritual reality and that that spiritual reality has an outcome and an end game that we can all, we're all privy to through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So I'm setting the stage there for us. Um, and I, now I just want to answer I think as we look at it, begin any book, it's good to just answer really foundational questions about the book as we introduce it to you all. So we're going to look at, uh, we're going to look at the what and the how and the who and the where and the why. And before we do that, I just want to say, uh, I, I'm heavily influenced in this series by a wonderful pastor named Rankin Wilburn, who pastors a PCA church called Pacific Crossroads out in L.A. My wife and I went to visit that, visit that church a while back, and we absolutely loved it. And he preached this sermon on Revelation. Micah introduced me to this, this series. So there's going to be some of his stuff in here because it's just, there's just some gold nuggets I wanted to include. But I want to give him all the credit 
for what God has done through his ministry that's really affected me in my preparation for this. So let's look at the what. What kind of book is this? And that question is answered right at the outset. And establishing what this book is about at the outset is of uttermost importance to John, the author, and it should be to us as well. He gives it to us very clearly. He says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that word revelation, it's an important one for us to define because the Greek word is a familiar word that's often been sensationalized in our culture, which really is apocalypse. So it's the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, when we hear that word, we think of movies like Bird Box, or we think of Armageddon, or we think of something where it's this cataclysmic world-ending event called the apocalypse. That is not the meaning of this word here. So we've, we've sensationalized it. The real meaning of this word here is a revealing or an unveiling. So this is the unveiling or the revealing of Jesus Christ. Pretty simple, right? I'm going to tell you right now who Jesus Christ is and what he has done, past, present, and future, in the history that he is the centerpiece of. I'm going to point him in, I'm going to put him in as the rightful hero that he is in this story, in this conflict of good and evil, as a right to people who are being persecuted by evil forces whose lives are being threatened. I'm going to remind you that there is a rescuer, there is a redeemer. There is ultimate hope. No matter how bleak life gets, there is good that will prevail. The revealing and the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It is right there out in front of us. And you know what that tells us that's so important? It means that John's not trying to hide anything. The book of Revelation is not a book that we're supposed to read with a newspaper in one hand and a decoder ring in the other trying to discern the times, trying to figure out what Russia equals in, in Revelation or another country. The reason this is so important is because it's telling us that this book is not trying to hide anything. It's not meant to confuse or baffle us. The author is not writing in some mysterious code we have to decipher. One of my favorite games to play with my kids is I Spy. Have you all played this game? Played on road trips. I spy with my little eye something that is red, let's say, or green, or blue. Um, we're all familiar with the game. But in that game, there is one person who sees what they want to see, and then everyone else is trying to guess what they're trying to get them to, to see. What is the red thing that this person sees? And then you ask questions, and you make guesses, and all of this stuff. One person sees clearly while everyone else is left in the dark to guess. That's not what Revelation is. Revelation is not a game of I spy. It's not as if he knows something that we don't, and we're meant to just be left in the dark to guess until something sticks. Instead, the author from the first line sets the record straight that this letter's purpose is to reveal the person, the work of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. One of my favorite quotes this week that I read about this says, Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. Don't try and puzzle it out. Revelation is actually not revealing anything new, but it's interesting that it's confirming everything that's been told to us from the previous 65 books of the Bible. Revelation quotes the Old Testament more than any other book in the Bible. Some over 500 times the Old Testament is referenced. 
What that tells us is it's not just here to give us new information. So Revelation is not just written for people of the modern church to look, to look forward, only forward, to try to figure out what's going to happen in the future. Now, are there future elements to the book of Revelation that it talks about? Absolutely. Things that haven't happened yet, like Jesus' second coming? Absolutely. But there's much more history involved in what John is writing about than it's often given credit for. Eugene Peterson, in his book called Reversed Thunder, his commentary on Revelation, he says this. This is really, I think, a good way to put it. He says, I do not read the Revelation to get additional information about the life of faith in Christ. I have read it all before in the Law and the Prophet, in Gospel and Epistle. Everything in the Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. The Revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know. The truth of the Gospel is already complete, revealed in Jesus Christ. There's nothing new to say on the subject, but there is a new way to say it. I read the Revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. And that's what Revelation is for. It's for the creatives. It's for the dreamers. It's for the poets. It's for the artists. It's a great book to study in Nashville. But with so many creative types, in the, even in this very room. It's a book that's meant to add vivid color to maybe what had seemed black and white previously. So, that's the what. Let's look at the how. The rest of verse 1, he says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants the things that must soon take place. What's really important to highlight here is that, and it's simple, this is from God. This revelation is from God to Jesus, to an angel, to John, to the seven churches in Asia. That's how all of Scripture is written. 1 Peter 1.21 tells us how Scripture is written. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, this does not mean robotic dictation. They weren't just like in some tr crazy trance, just you know, writing out words. They wrote as they were carried along by the Spirit, by their own personality. You can read the different books of the Bible, and you can see the different personality of their authors. That's why we know the different people wrote them. They either say it was by a different person, or they, they read differently. The language is used differently because they each have their own unique personal stamp on them, because this is how God reveals truth to us. And we believe that the Bible is closed, that this canon is closed. Revelation will say over and over again, don't add to these words. This is complete. This is sufficient. That's really important for us to understand in a culture that oftentimes wants to add to Scripture or say, well, God told me this, or God revealed this to me, and this is truth. If it contradicts the Bible, then it's not of God. Now, does God reveal things to people and speak to people through his word? Absolutely, I believe he does. Essie's actually one of the cutest things in the world. She's asking every day, when's Jesus going to speak to me? And so I say, let's go to the Bible and read it together. And he'll speak to us there. That's the source. And that's what revelation is. So we don't need more revelation to understand revelation. It's all right here. It's a really important thing to understand about how we at Flat Rock and as Christians view the scriptures in very high regard as our authority, as being completely true. And it is God who is giving it 
to his servants to tell us. These imperfect sinners are writing as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit, the perfect truth of God. And they're called servants. They're bond, Paul refers to himself as a bond servant. These are people whose lives have been purchased and claimed by God. They've been adopted into the family of God. And he writes to people who are in the same situation, the same reality. We are servants of God. And we receive his word as instructions for how to serve him and how to be obedient to his calling. And that's the purpose in large part, of Revelation, which we'll get into more in just a second. We believe that the Word is living and active, that it is not the uh, evidence of God's absence or Jesus' absence. It's the assurance of His presence. In other words, Jesus didn't ascend into heaven and then leave us with this, this, this book and say, I hope this tidies you over until I come back. As some nice little comforting story to make sense of your reality while I'm gone. It is living and active. It is meant to instruct us and guide us and help us and inspire us and motivate us and reorient us to truth. And so as a revelation of God himself, we believe it's connected to these other 65 books of the Bible and actually fits perfectly in to the canon. So let's look at the who. That's the what and the how, and here's the who. The who is uh, simple to define. It is John. He self-identifies himself. John is the writer of this book. Now, the only debate is, is it John the Apostle or this guy named John the Revelator or John of Patmos? Uh, we don't really know, and some of that has to do with the dating of this book. I personally believe this book was written during 95 AD. Some people believe it's as early as 64 AD, and the only reason there's debate there is because there were two emperors that heavily persecuted the, the church. That was Nero in, the, in uh, 64, and then there was Domitian in uh, 95. And Nero never persecuted the church in Eastern Tur what is modern-day Eastern Turkey or in Asia at the time, and Domitian did. And so I believe that since he's writing to the churches in Asia, that he is writing under Domitian's reign when Domitian is per persecuting these churches in what is modern-day Eastern Turkey, and that defining if it's John the Apostle or John the, Rev John the Revelator is not particularly helpful in us understanding what this book is really about. So you can, you can choose which one you believe wrote it. Um, I believe John the Apostle wrote it, and I'm going to teach it as such. But that's open for debate, and it's okay. Um, next, the where. John says he's writing from prison in Patmos. And Patmos is essentially um, death row. It's the place where these prisoners were sent, and they probably would not be... Um, able to ever leave or escape. They were exiled here. And it was believed that John was exiled here after he was actually miraculously delivered from being put in a pot of burning oil in the Colosseum, and he was pulled out from it unscathed. And there's a belief that, or an idea or theory, that the entire Colosseum came to know Christ through this miraculous uh, intervention of God for John, the author here. And then after he was delivered from that, as people were, you know, essentially um, not following the emperor of Rome and calling him God anymore, but calling the God of Christianity God, they wanted to exile him and get rid of him and get rid of that message. And so they didn't have any charges against him other than he was um, essentially telling people not to worship uh, Domitian. And so they put him in this prison in Patmos, and it's from this prison in Patmos that he writes these seven letters to these different churches. And then one of the, 
I'd say the, the next most important question behind the what of what this is is the why. And we'll just end with that. Why is he writing this? And he tells us in verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Here's the reason this is so important. is because it helps us interpret what he's writing. He says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophet. He not only hears them, but also does them. So there's a present reality to the obedience he desires from people who are reading this letter. So as his letter is distributed, you know, they don't have the printing press back then, and not everyone knows how to read. There's a high rate of illiteracy. And so what people did is they brought these into these places of worship for a lot of these Christians in Turkey. They were hiding away in some room somewhere, and they would have these very tiny worship gatherings. And this letter was meant to be read to them to remind them, as your lives are being threatened and you're feeling like you need to hide, you can trust that God has not lost favor for you. God has not given up on you. Again, you know, one of the most important things I think I've set up here is that suffering is not the opposite of blessing. So what, he's not saying, blessed are you and you will never suffer again. He's saying, blessed are you who are suffering. Well, that doesn't seem to make sense to us in our culture. I'm not blessed if I'm suffering. That doesn't seem like I'm experiencing God's favor. God's saying, blessing is not simply living a comfortable life. Blessing is experiencing me even in the midst of your worst days and your worst moments. That I am real, that I care, that I love you, that the gospel is real, that Jesus himself has suffered because that's what really makes Christianity unique is we have a God who doesn't, who's not ill-acquainted with our suffering, who doesn't turn a blind eye to our suffering, but one who has suffered himself in the person of Jesus Christ. That separates Christianity from all other religions. He has suffered himself, and so this letter is giving as comfort to those who are suffering as well, and not only just to say it's going to be okay, but to respond to the reading of this letter in obedience to who God is. Now think about that for a second. You've got people really doubting. This, this letter is in large part to those who are in doubt, because as they're suffering, and suffering in ways that we probably are there might be a few of us in this room who have suffered in some of these ways, but probably most of us haven't where our very lives have been threatened because of our faith in Jesus. Where family members have been killed and slaughtered because of it. Where we've been exiled and sent to hide because of our faith. And so you can imagine the amount of doubt people are having. Is God real? Does he exist? Why would he allow this to happen? Under his watch, how is, his, how is his kingdom that we read about that's supposed to destroy all these other kingdoms throughout history, how is that kingdom succeeding? And in a place that, that is run by Rome where they're erecting all of these statues and temples and all of this, this propaganda to, to tell the world that there is another God who is the emperor, they're probably asking themselves, is my God really who he says he is? Because that's an, usually our places of most distinct doubt, is when life isn't working out like we thought it should. And maybe that's happening to you today, and so you're coming in here with some real doubt about the existence of God and God's love in the midst of a world that still suffers from evil. And the book of Revelation is meant to call you not to turn a blind eye to it, not to dismiss it, not to curse God because of it, 
but to live in obedience and surrender to him as Lord and Savior of your life. That's a huge challenge for us. But that's the why of why he's writing it, to reorient us and those who are suffering to a right understanding of their place and God's place in this world that is broken and not working as it should, to keep what is written in it for the time is near. And I'll close with that. You know, he says two kind of provocative statements, uh, which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place and keep the words of this prophecy for the time is near. That's the most debatable part of Revelation. What does John mean by soon and near? I personally hold to this, the idea that we are living in the last days. We are living in the last days from Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven until he comes again. And that Satan has been loose for a time to influence the world and to spread evil. And that one day Jesus will come back and he will judge and extinguish Satan and all evil. And that he will set up his kingdom here on earth forever. That kingdom we read about in Daniel that will last forever. And so I think that the soon and the near is him referring to these last days. So from he's writing in the last days after Jesus' resurrection until he comes again. And he's saying the time is near and we need to live as such. We're not told when Jesus will come back, right? It's very specific in the scriptures. He'll come back like a thief in the night. Jesus doesn't even know the day or the hour he'll come back. Only the Father in heaven knows the day or the hour. Yet people want to read Revelation as if they're trying to crack some code to figure out when Jesus is coming back. The reason he says time, the, 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 the time is near and it's coming soon is because he wants all of us to live as if that is the reality. So live your life in obedience as if Jesus is coming back today because you don't know the time or the hour. How many of you all are living your lives that way? How many of you all are making your decisions on a daily basis as if Jesus himself could return and end all things today? We, I would say most of us, 99% of us, aren't really thinking that way or doing that. What would it look like for us to be a church that begins to equip people to live as if this is the reality? What kind of decisions would we make? What commitments would we make with the money we're trying to raise? What would we support and get involved in? How would that change us as a community? Well, I think this awakened thing that we're doing is a pretty good way to start. Commit ourselves to denying ourselves and taking up our cross and praying for those who don't know Jesus to come to know Jesus. To doing that together, to sharing our stories of struggle and suffering with one another about how we're struggling with fasting and we're struggling with spiritual disciplines. God has given us the spiritual disciplines to show us how to live life, not to be a burden on us or to make life more uh, uncomfortable, but to show us what it is to live in utter dependence upon him. So this morning, a healthy question in conclusion to ask yourself is, am I ready for Jesus to return? And how can I know if I'm ready or not? And to that, I would say you must ask yourself what the words of this prophecy mean to you. Do you long to heed the instruction here given by God for his saints? Do you want to respond in obedience and in faith? Do you want to keep these words and store them in your heart or not? If not, I would encourage you to interrogate your heart and ask yourself why. Why don't you? Why, doesn't that, why is that not a priority to you? 
And what would it look like for it to become a priority to you? Because we believe that at this table, we've seen at Flat Rock something really cool happen at this table. We've seen people, we just had someone last week who gave their life to Jesus because of the influence and the love of someone from our church caring for them and then hearing that they could come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, even this morning, that they could repent of their sins and come to know him. And they did. And we've seen that happen more than once here at Flat Rock. And so I would, I would ask you the same thing as we come to this table. Um, is Jesus the one who you look to as that ultimate hope? The one who will come and make all the sad things come untrue? If he is, this table is for you. This is a table and a reminder of that hope that we all share together. If that's not your hope this morning, then we would say sit and ask yourselves, what would it look like for me to surrender my life to him as Lord and Savior? To, 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 to ask him to come to my heart to save me from all the things that I've been looking to that are false, that aren't satisfying? What would it look like for Jesus to be my true satisfaction?